Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 41 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, November the 12th. First, I'll be talking to Damien Morgan and Kyle Glass, who founded the safe startup SafeStay, which provides safety audit inspections for short-stay accommodation in response to the tragedy of short-stay accommodation incidents, including fraud, injury and even fatalities. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Olber about the prospect of the RBA raising interest rates. But now, let's talk to Damien Morgan and Kyle Glass. Kyle, Damien, tell us about SafeStay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, SafeStay is... A safety inspection audit company specifically targeted towards short-term rentals. What we identified is that realistically across the nation, there is no minimum standards around safety or security within short-term rentals. So we decided to put together a framework which specifically targets to improve the level of safety and security. So that way, guests can ensure that they are going to stay at accommodation that's really in their best interest for them and their family. I mean, some prefer the flexibility of short-term renting, but uh, for others, the uncertainty and and informality of the living situation can be quite stressful and can cause a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, That's that's obviously a a key focus of ours is um, to ensure that, you know, when you're booking a short-term rental, uh, wherever that be, we're obviously focused here in Australia, that, uh, that the property is going to be safe and secure. Um, for them to stay at and they know that they're I guess with what's happened recently with the the COVID-19 everyone has you know they're conscious about health and safety and you know moving forward to ensure that you know their you know their family and themselves are protected so I think moving forward that that's going to be key with people you know booking short stay accommodation that that they've got that you know safety and security you know that's going to be there. So how does it work? How does it actually work your system? We're trying to get hosts to realise that the focus is now all around uh, a conversation with guests around safety and security and not necessarily transactional. So hosts would go and jump on our website and they would book a safety inspection audit. And we would then send the host a parameter of, of things we look for during that inspection where they can go off and make sure that it is uh, in the right form. And then we physically go out and inspect the property. And we do a safety audit inspection check, which covers off 
uh, you know, as suggested, safety, security, and cleanliness. Um, and that's from things such as smoke alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, uh, trip hazards, broken glass, you know, cords through window cables, you know, general security that you'd expect that other sectors are look that, that, that are relevant in other sectors, but just aren't uh, relevant in, in the short-term rental space. So you would actually physically inspect every property? Correct, absolutely. Right, okay. So how many properties uh, would you be looking at here? <laughs> well, it's a pretty expansive market, uh, as we're all aware, through Australia. So there's about 140,000 short-term rental accommodations. So there's a lot of property to be inspected. Uh, and, you know, we're certainly setting our, our goals and, and aiming very high. You know, we're trying to work with governing bodies around the country on a state and federal level to try and really get these minimum standards improved across the industry. So we hope that, you know, in time there will be mandatory legislation uh, around these safety and security and cleanliness conversations. And, you know, we want to be in the box position to, to instill that out there in the marketplace. Obviously, uh, you would have a lot of tenants on site, but what about landlords? How are you going to get them on site for this? Well, it's, I mean, it's about showing as a landlord or as a host that you are mindful about guest safety. You know, it's not just a transactional conversation. We do believe that our product out in the marketplace uh, will actually increase the value. You know, we've got surveys and studies to suggest that if you do have a safety audit inspection that is focused around safety, security, and cleanliness, people will pay more for that. So that's a win-win on both aspects for guests and hosts alike. So, you know, if you can position yourself as being a leader and wanting to improve the overall standards, you will be rewarded by being able to ask for more, for more money, but also, uh, you know, less vacancy. You know, this is a true conversation that's going to be coming out of the other side of this pandemic. Uh, and it's going to be a main focus. So why not get yourself ahead of the rest and have a unique selling proposition to really make sure that you stand out from the crowd? Well, of course, the uh, pandemic has infected the entire rental market quite severely, hasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're looking at uh, long-term rentals, it absolutely has, you know, with a saturation of market uh, properties coming to market. But in the short-term rental side, yeah, the market's been obliterated, but we do realise and do recognise that the market's about to explode for short-term rental. You know, once everybody gets out of their isolation and these restrictions drop on a state level, everybody's going to be itching to get out and, and, and stay elsewhere. And that's going to be the new uh, holiday routine of Australians. It's to stay local, stay domestic, um, and that'll be the annual getaway for every family. So are you also taking into account Airbnb with your model? Well, well, yes, yeah, that, that's part of the um, short-term rental market. Yeah, just touching on the, um, in regards to the safety and security audit um, and cleanliness is we're not asking, you know, and we're not checking on anything, you know, outrageous or different to what that would be required for a longer-term rental property. Um, so we're just, what we're doing is, you know, um, going out there and, and making, I guess, the shorter stay properties fall in line with the longer term rental uh, property market. So, um, you know, like Cole mentioned before, you know, ensuring that they've got those, you know, um, smoke detectors and, and um, pool fences and, and the like that are required for longer term rentals. Just so then when we do get out and, and go into the market and start, you know, having holidays again within Australia and, and kickstarting the, the industry in Australia, that the people can be safe when they're staying at the properties. Uh, the uh, short-term rental industry has been changing quite radically over the last 10 years. Would that be right? Absolutely. 
Can you explain how? Well, the, uh, 10 years ago, there was a very limited um, short-term rental properties on the market. You know, your, your options were is a, is a hotel room. You know, that's basically where, where it was. And, and now today, I think there's, um, Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong, around a couple hundred thousand uh, properties in New South Wales or in Sydney alone to be, you know, rented out day in, day out on the uh, Airbnb platform or, or the like of the short-term rental platform. Right. Okay. 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 It's the evolution of the of the share economy, right? So, I think if you look at say the way of the world, particularly in the last sort of five to seven years, the opportunity to start sharing your own space, which then obviously transitioned into your own property, and then there was a huge shift to investing in property based on a short term rental strategy, and that really came to light sort of three to five years ago, and as a result the short-term rental market exploded with properties available because you now had investors in the market looking to buy property on the back of that Airbnb or short-term strategy. Right. I mean, what's uh, what's uh, quite good about this is that, as a rule, uh, tenants, uh, from my experience anyway, tend to be don't tend to be comfortable having conversations with landlords about issues like, say, security and safety and stuff like that. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what our product and what we offer is effectively that that certificate and that authentic, uh, authentication so that way those conversations don't necessarily need to be had. Um, you know, that way that tenants or, or guests in particular can go to property and know instantly that they're getting something that has been properly certified by a third-party independent inspection company. So it eliminates those tough conversations that guests and tenants don't necessarily want to have. But like I said, it also puts the focus back on the host, showing that they do care about safety and security and cleanliness to their hosts, uh, sorry, to their guests and tenants. So, um, you know, coming back to your question, yeah, it avoids those tougher conversations. Uh, you know, every other governing body, particularly when you look at long-term residential letting or, or, or property, there's all these minimum criteria that landlords need to, to meet. Uh, but it just doesn't exist in the short-term rental space. And, you know, we know that these conversations are wanting to be had by tenants. So we eliminate that because we're doing it for them. We're now saying these are the standards that, and like Damien said, they're not outrageous standards. You know, they're very practical standards. So we're not looking for anything out of the ordinary or extraordinary, but we want to make sure that there are those minimum standards in place and that there's a true trusted audit inspection out there that everybody can rely on and so you will be the formal audit service for the short-term rental market in that case that's exactly how we're positioning ourselves because we do believe what we're offering is a win-win for everybody involved hosts and guests alike okay and this is all sort of certified uh, legally and everything like that with documentation Yep, so we effectively have two inspectors that go into the property, one that's completely across fire and electrical standards, and then another order that goes through around the uh, legislative standards for, um, like Damien touched on, pool fencing compliance, you know, window locks for strata buildings, all those typical compliances that you'd expect, like I said, in, say, a long-term residential uh, setup. Uh, we adopt and are adopting and implementing into our safety audit inspection for the short-term market. Well, uh, Kyle and uh, Damien, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Both really appreciate your time.
And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Shane, with the surprisingly strong core inflation figures of 2.1%, there's now speculation that the RBA could lift interest rates next year. But the RBA insists it won't be doing it until 2024. What's your view? It does look as if the RBA's previous assurances on interest rates look a bit too dovish and they will now have to change their guidance and bring forward the expected liftoff for interest rates. In fact, we have seen a stronger than expected recovery in the economy coming out of the lockdowns, which have now ended or are in the process of ending. That combined with the higher inflation readings, not so much for the headline numbers, but for the underlying measures that the RBA focuses on, what they call the trim mean and the median, the fact that they were higher, combined with the stronger rebounding growth, suggests to us that the RBA will start raising interest rates next year. Probably not until November, though, because I think the first step for the RBA will be to end its 0.1% bond yield target and also to end its quantitative easing or bond buying program. But the reality is that it uh, looks, looks like rate hikes are going to come earlier than the RBA has been telling us. The Flip side, though, is that money markets, of course, have got a lot more nervous about things and they've been factoring rate hikes sometime in the next six months. Uh, that seems a bit too uh, hawkish to us. I think it's going to be a little bit later than that. The Reserve Bank is still a little bit wary, I would think, um, given the, the years of inflation underperformance um, prior to the pandemic. So they want to see more clear evidence that the recovery is going to stick, uh, that uh, we're not going to see another setback from the pandemic, and that uh, the inflation rise is going to continue such that inflation stays within the target. And I think it'll take a while before they get to that point. That's why we're assuming late next year, even though the money market seems to be assuming somewhat earlier. So what's driving the inflation? I know there's been a whole lot of uh, supply chain issues with the pandemic. Has that been driving inflation to some extent? Look, these supply chain issues are a big part of it, and this is a global phenomenon, and the rise in inflation in Australia is actually quite mild compared to what you're seeing internationally. For example, we have headline inflation at 3%, US around 55 UK, Canada, New Zealand, all similar to that, 45 to 5.5%. Likewise, on the underlying side, in many countries around the world, if you strip out the impact of higher energy prices, and high food prices, their underlying measures are running around, say, three and a half, whereas in Australia we're running around 2.1. So we haven't seen the quite, quite the same rise other countries have, but we are seeing similar forces at work here. You've got a reopening trade as operations reopen, such as airlines reopen. Initially, they don't have the same number of planes on, and they're charging higher fares. That will eventually adjust. Likewise, hotel rates have a bit of a spike initially. So you get that aspect, and then you've got these supply chain issues that uh, through the pandemic, production was disrupted, China and elsewhere around the world. And, of course, uh, but there's been strong demand for goods. People couldn't spend on services. They couldn't go on holidays. So they wanted boats and cars and household durables and all those sorts of things, which have pushed their prices up. That's going to take a while for that to adjust. But they're, they're sort of, I guess, a guide to the sort of pressures we're seeing on inflation. It's quite possible, probable, in fact, that some of that is transitory. You know, it's hard to see people spending as much on cars and boats and things as they have lately. Eventually, that will fall back to more normal levels, as you can once again go on overseas holidays and spend on services like you used to. But for the time being, that is causing nervousness among central banks. And the more the signs of stronger wages growth, the greater the risk that the inflation pickup becomes a permanent pickup. And that's why central banks are starting to get more hawkish, including the RBA. 
Well, the story of the wages growth is interesting because people are now going back to work with the end of lockdowns. A lot of employers are complaining about skill shortages. And with skill shortages, they're going to be looking to pay staff more. That's right. The, the, the pandemic has caused all sorts of funny disruptions. You know, people don't work in the city as much as they used to. More online purchases. So that means less demand for sandwich makers in the city, say, or inner city cafes, but the jobs are in delivery drivers or uh, in manufacturing, perhaps. And so it's um, you've got this sort of mismatch in economies. And at the same time, workforces haven't gone back to the norm. Many countries around the world, people have been staying at home, worried about coronavirus. Schools may not have gone back, and so they can't get childcare for their children. So that's a problem. So there's all sorts of distortions caused by the pandemic. And in the meantime, in Australia, we don't have the immigrants and the backpackers coming in who normally fill in demand for various skills and various uh, hospitality jobs. And so that's another factor in there, all of which has led to a bit of wage movement. I guess when you look at the US, it's mainly low-end wages that are moving up. And I haven't seen the data on Australia, but I suspect it's something similar. But there is always a risk that that flows on through to a generalised wage increase. And there's also this debate about the great resignation, that people have been through the pandemic, they don't want to put up with bad bosses anymore or careers going nowhere, so they're going to resign in mass. That, to me, strikes me as a bit of an exaggeration, but there's, yeah, there's a grain of truth in it which can also mean some disruption. Now, obviously, those people might want to go somewhere else. They're not all going to become artisan bakers in, in Orange, but you know there might be an element of that. But I, I think, ultimately, again, that will settle down. But it's all a question of how long it takes to settle down. In the meantime, it creates uncertainty for central banks, such that they can't leave rates on hold at low levels for as long as they were previously thinking. What will it do for the RBA financially? Well, for the RBA, it's, I mean, they, they just start raising interest rates. It's more of, a, more of an issue, I think, for the federal government that has borrowed money, you know, has big budget deficits, and it might find that when it starts rolling over the bonds, the money that it's borrowed or continues to finance government earnings via deficits, via debt, that they might have to pay more for that debt. For example, the low point last year, the 10-year government bond yield in Australia was 0.6%. Yeah, the last few days, it's been up around 2%. So that's quite a big increase in the cost of funding the federal budget deficit, and that means higher spending on interest costs and potentially less spending on available and other items. I mean, mind you, in a great historical sense, you could argue rates are still low. It's just that they're not as low as they used to be, and that will entail a cost for the federal government. How far do you see interest rates rising to? Well, at this stage, we only see two rate hikes next year in November and December, ultimately taking the cash rate to 0.5% by the end of the year. And then I, we'll probably get another two hikes through 2023, which will take us up to 1%. Mind you, it's, yeah, that's a long way off. And forecasting that far out is fraught with all sorts of risks and things could go in either direction. And, of course, money markets are already assuming a one, more than a 1% hike by the end of next year. Uh, so the money markets are a lot more hawkish than we are. I, I think the best you can say is that we're probably moving into a world where interest rates will go higher. The magnitude of that increase is, is the big unknown in all of this and the timing of it. And a lot of it will depend on one's expectation regarding how long these inflationary pressures are with us for. The danger in all of this, I think, is that the reserve banks and central banks around the world slam on the brakes too quickly. And then you end up with a growth slowdown say, in 12 months' time, just at the time when people have had, had their fill of goods, 
uh, the supply bottlenecks have been resolved and so prices start falling and you end up back in, back with the worries being about deflation. That That is the scenario that central banks have to allow for, which is why they're probably not quite as hawkish as, as money markets. So. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One percent is still very low. One percent is still very low. It's just that it's a much higher rate than what we've become used to. If you translate that through, I mean, it's not going to be a one-for-one -one translation, but it'd give you a rough guide that it probably means ultimately that variable interest rates will go up by one percent, and the fixed rates might end up going by up by something similar in total. We have recently seen some increases in fixed rates. This is where the the impact will come initially on the economy because a lot of borrowing recently in Australia has been at fixed rates. Now, the people who've got those fixed rate loans won't see an increase in their borrowing costs. But if you're a new home borrower and thinking, well, I'm going to jump in now and get a 2% deal on, on fixed rates and lock in that for three years or two years, you may find by the time the paperwork's all done that the rate will be somewhat higher. And in 12 months' time, that rate might be might be around 3%. So that so it impacts marginal demand in the economy for, say, things like housing, and that's going to start having a negative impact on house prices. But it's correct. You know, those rates are still very low. It's just that the amount of money you have to borrow these days to buy a house is much more than it used to be. And so, therefore, a 1% increase in interest rates today is probably equivalent to something like a 4% increase in interest rates in, say, 1989, simply because debt levels are much higher and because house prices are much higher relative to people's incomes. Of course, so that could become quite an issue. But uh, the other big issue, too, is what impact would that have on house prices? Will it send house prices down? I think ultimately it will, but we don't want to get too excited too quickly here. I think there's a bit of a leads and lags here. Interest rates are still low. That's the reality. And the economy is recovering. And at some point, immigration levels might rise. So those things could provide a bit of support for housing, house prices over the next little while. I think the most likely scenario is that house price gains, which have slowed from around 2.5% in March of this year and have slowed to, on the latest numbers from CoreLogic, slowed to 1.5%. In the month of October, house price gains will continue to slow down as we go into next year. So we're probably getting to the peak in terms of annual price growth, which, uh, according to CoreLogic, saw uh, national house prices up 20, almost 22% over the last 12 months. So we, we're coming to the peak in that. But the monthly rate of increase will continue to slow down. It's already been slowing down through this year, but it will slow down into next year. And by the latter part of next year, I think prices will start falling as the impact of higher interest rates, initially fixed rates and then eventually variable rates, starts to catch up with the property market. 
And as we go through 2023, we're probably looking at price falls, maybe 5 to 10%. And if rates still keep going up, we could see price declines in 2024 as well. So I think we've probably seen the best in terms of the rate of increase in house prices. We're coming into a slowing period and in a year's time, prices will be in decline and that may continue for a while. I mean, you've got to allow that the reality here is that lower interest rates enable people to borrow more, and that's pushed prices up. When you move in a world of higher interest rates, people, can, by definition, can, can only borrow less, and that puts downwards pressure on their purchasing power, on their buying power when it comes to buying a new home, and that will put downwards pressure on home prices. But I think in the absence of 4 or 5% increase, you know, a massive increase in interest rates or a recession, you know, I don't see a crash in prices, but we have to allow that we're, we're coming into a world of, I think, where prices will be under downwards pressure as we go through the latter part of 2022 into 2023. Which will have huge implications for the housing investment? It will impact uh, housing supply. Probably wouldn't exaggerate it because uh, there's still going to be underlying demand. This is sort of a... One thing that may limit the fall is if immigration returns, and there, there's a debate, debate about how quickly it will return, but that may, may limit the impact in the fall that on the housing investment market. And the big thing you really don't want in Australia is to see a big fall in housing construction because that will just mean ongoing problems with affordability. You know, we'll have a, a period of falling prices, you know, like we did in 2017, 2018. Prices might come off 10%, 15% in Sydney. And then you know, we're back again to a period of undersupply and that would then underpin ongoing poor affordability and no real improvement in things. So there's a difficult balancing act here that I think the authorities, government, RBA need to, to, to follow. You don't want to see prices come down so much that it stops the construction of housing, which then then leads to an undersupply of housing. So there is a bit of a balancing act here. Well, Shane, that's all fascinating, and thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Leon. All the best. So what's happening in the news? Well, Facebook's Instagram platform has seen a dramatic slump in use by young Australians, according to confidential internal documents. Prepared for Facebook executives, the research, dated March 2021, warns of concerning and problematic declines in the amount of time teenage users in Australia are spending on the photo-sharing platform, down 9% to 36 minutes a day over six months, and how much content they are producing. The research, part of a tranche of documents lodged with the US Securities and Exchange Commission, shows the fall in use was greater in Australia than in other markets, including the US, France, Britain and Japan. The amount of content being produced by teenage users in Australia also fell 7%, the data reveals. The disclosure of falling Instagram consumption follows the release of internal research first published in the Wall Street Journal in September that concluded the platform exacerbated feelings of anxiety, depression and body image issues for teenage girls. We make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, one slide from a 2019 presentation read. The fall in the use of Instagram in Australia and in other major markets comes as Facebook grapples with serious problems in attracting and retaining young users on its other platforms. And General Electric said it would split into three public companies as a storied US industrial conglomerate seeks to simplify its business, pare down debt and breathe life into a battered share price. The split marks the end of the 129-year-old conglomerate that was once the most valuable US corporation and a global symbol of American business power. The Boston-based company said the three businesses would focus on energy, healthcare and aviation. It will combine GE Renewable Energy, GE Power and GE Digital and spin off the business in early 2024. 
GE will also separate the healthcare company in which it expects to retain a stake of 19.9% in early 2023. Following the split, it will become an aviation company, helmed by GE Chief Executive Larry Kelp. And News Corp Australia has posted a $60.7 million loss as the pandemic exacerbates ongoing upheaval throughout the media industry. The company blamed a $167 million hit to advertising revenues on regional and community closures or digital transitions. More than 220 Australian newsrooms have shrunk or vanished since the start of the pandemic, while 111 have opened or expanded. News Corp Australia's financial report for its publishing and printing group revealed the $60.7 million loss to ASIC this week, less than the $151.4 million the year before. Its 2020-21 report shows a $167 million decline in advertising revenue, reflecting the closure or transition to digital of regional and community newspapers. These closures, though, were also partly responsible for a drop in expenses of $58 million. Now, Australia's federal election is most likely to be held in May next year, with the Morrison government preparing to fight the poll on an expected economic bounce back from COVID-19. The public service in Canberra is undertaking preparatory work for an April budget, with bureaucrats being told to be prepared to cut short their summer holiday plans in January. No final decision had been made on an election date, but the odds were firming for an April budget, followed by a May election. With the coalition trailing Labor in opinion polls, Prime Minister Scott Morrison wants to make the election a referendum on which side of politics can be trusted to manage the economic recovery from COVID-19. Labor will focus on the slow start to the vaccine rollout, the Prime Minister's trustworthiness and the coalition's lack of conviction for action on climate change. Treasury, the Reserve Bank of Australia and market economists are forecasting strong economic growth from late this year as cashed-up consumers reopen their wallets after lockdowns in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT. A booming economy is expected to be fuelled by more than $200 billion of excess household savings, high vaccination rates, an easing of health restrictions, international and state borders reopening and low interest rates. The RBA tips an economic bounce back forecasting robust economic growth of 5.5% next year, although it expects wages growth and inflation pressures to remain moderate. And as part of that, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has rolled out a policy on electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, once derided by Scott Morrison as ending the weekend, will be the focus of a $500 million strategy projected to create more than 2,600 jobs. The Prime Minister anticipates $250 million in federal future fuels funding will be matched by private investment aiming to reshape Australia's transport sector and put up to 1.7 million electric vehicles on roads by 2030. Investment will focus on public and household electric vehicle charging, as well as electrifying commercial fleets and heavy and long-distance vehicles. More than 50,000 households and 400 businesses would have access to charging infrastructure alongside at least 1,000 public charging stations. The government also anticipates up to 84% of the population will be able to access fast-charging stations. Making sure the electricity grid is ready for widespread EV use is expected to avoid upgrade costs of $224 million this decade. The government's strategy does not plan to manufacture EVs in Australia. It rules out consumer subsidies and concessions to help people buy EVs or mandating a phase-out of new petrol and or diesel-powered vehicles. It has been criticised by electric vehicle manufacturers. It is nothing like Joe Biden's EV tax credits that could nudge millions of Americans to swap their 2005 Honda Civic for a brand new Nissan Leaf. NRMA spokesman Peter Koury said the two key issues facing Australian consumers were the access to charging infrastructure and the price of the vehicles. 
During the past four years, the organisation has rolled out more than 44 fast-charging stations across regional Australia. Opposition leader Anthony Albanese said the government had changed its tune on electric cars in the lead-up to an election campaign. He said Australia risked being left behind if it did not do more to increase the number of electric vehicles. Britain, Japan, France and Germany have pledged to ban sales of combustion engines between 2025 and 2030, while Norway leads the way in electric vehicle ownership, driven by a range of incentives such as waiving import tariffs and sales tax, as well as registration fees. In 2020, it became the first country where EV sales outstripped petrol, diesel and hybrid vehicle sales combined. And the Morrison government has pledged up to $1 billion more to develop low emissions technology via the establishment of a new fund that will give it and private sector investors an equity stake in startups. As part of the government's plan to reach net zero emissions by 2020, the Low Emissions Technology Commercialisation Fund, to be administered by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, will focus on developing emerging technologies. The Net Zero Plan says these emerging technologies, currently fledgling in nature, will be responsible for delivering 15% of the requisite emission reductions by 2050. Such technologies include changes to livestock feed to reduce methane emissions, more efficient glass coatings on solar panels, methods to measure soil carbon, software improvements, lighter and more efficient batteries, and direct atmospheric capture of carbon dioxide and storage underground. The government will match private investor contributions of up to $500 million with the aim of raising $1 billion. Unlike the CEFC, which is a loan fund, the new Low Emissions Fund will be an equity vehicle. If established, it will fill a gap in the Australian market where small technology-focused startups are often considered difficult to finance. And the chief executive of electric vehicle charging infrastructure company EV Networks says a deal with Jack Cowan's Hungry Jack's fast food chain is a forerunner of a paradigm shift in its early stage where convenient sites in cities will gradually replace a traditional trip to a service station. Chris Mills says convenience is the number one priority for electric vehicle owners, most of whom will continue to recharge vehicles at home or in the workplace. Putting fast charging infrastructure at locations such as quick service restaurants, libraries or local council hubs, which are part of the normal patterns of daily life, is central to the continued trialling of the best locations. Mills says it's unshackling people from service stations. The first of the fast charging units is located at the Hungry Jack's outlet at Cabramatta in Sydney's southwest. Mr Mills said a further seven sites in other cities at Hungry Jack's outlets are in the planning stage. And Commonwealth Bank of Australia has struck a big blow in its bid to take on global big tech, leading a US $100 million, that's $134 million Aussie, funding round for leading artificial intelligence platform H20.ai and forming a partnership, it says, will help it release smarter products and make faster decisions than rivals. H20.ai is one of the most highly rated AI platforms in Silicon Valley. As well as being a venture capital-style investment from CBA, the platform will be used across the bank's many systems, such as customer rewards, online retail, credit assessment and fraud detection, to let it deliver individually tailored offers and fintech-style services. As well as making its existing apps smarter, CBA is hoping the ability to analyse its vast amounts of data more efficiently with the H20.ai platform will give it a jump start on its rivals among the big four banks in inventing future products. CBA is the latest in a stream of major global financial institutions to invest in the company as well as using its technology to develop AI-based products. H20.ai had a pre-money valuation of US $1.6 billion and counts Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Capital One and the investment arm of a Chinese insurance giant, Ping An, as investors and customers. 
and the big four banks will not appear before the Senate inquiry into the effectiveness of the country's anti-money laundering regime, despite being individually invited to discuss the level of investment needed to avoid systemic breaches of laws to prevent financial crime. Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, ANZ Bank and the National Australia Bank are responsible for reporting the bulk of suspected criminal activity passing through Australia's financial system and were each invited by the Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee to participate in public hearings starting Tuesday. The Senate approved a motion by Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill in June to launch a formal inquiry into the effectiveness of laws, regulators and companies tasked with preventing financial crime. The committee has since called on a range of law enforcement, academic and industry participants to participate in two days of public hearings. The banks have declined individual invitations to appear before the committee and will instead be represented by the Australian Banking Association, a lobby group representing 21 Australian banks. CBA and ANZ declined to comment on the non-attendance. A spokesman for NAB said executives were unable to attend because the hearings coincided with NAB's full-year results scheduled for Tuesday, but added the bank is happy to engage with inquiry at another time. And NAB's cash profit climbed 76.8% to $6.56 billion for the 12 months ended September 30 from last year, the bank said on Tuesday in an ASX statement. Excluding lumpy notable items, profit was up 38.6%. The result exceeded expectations, with analysts pencilling in an annual NAB profit of $6.45 billion, according to Bloomberg estimates. NAB rounds out the profit results for three of the big four that have a September 30 balance date, while Commonwealth Bank ruled off its year on June 30. And BHP, the nation's largest mining company, is continuing to reduce its exposure to fossil fuels with a deal to sell two Queensland coking cola companies to ASX-listed Stanmore Resources. The deal, under which Stanmore has agreed to pay US $1.2 billion, that's $1.6 billion Aussie, to acquire BHP's 80% stake in the BHP-Mitsui Coal Joint Ventures Poitral and South Walker Creek mines in the Bowen Basin, marks the latest step in the company's push to better align its portfolio with global decarbonisation efforts. If a deal is completed, BHP's only remaining coke and coal mines would be its higher quality hard coke and coal mines jointly owned with Mitsubishi, which it believes will be increasingly needed to meet the world's ongoing steel demand, including to build clean energy infrastructure such as wind turbines. BHP has been actively looking to get out of thermal coal, which is used in power generation and ranks as the world's biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. The miner said it remained in the process of looking for a buyer for its last thermal coal mine at Mount Arthur in the New South Wales Upper Hunter. And Yuganaut Aussie conglomerate, West Farmers, has announced it will acquire Australian Pharmaceutical Industries Limited, or API, the parent company of well-known household brands Priceline and Sol Patterson Chemists, for $763 million. The acquisition will grow West Farmers' already impressive lists of brands including Bunnings, Kmart and Officeworks. West Farmers already owned a 19.3% stake in API, which also owns Clear Skin Care, Pharmacist Advice and Catalogue Program Pharmacy Best Buys. Priceline and Priceline Pharmacy is one of Australia's biggest pharmaceutical and beauty retailers, boasting more than 420 stores nationwide. And Sydney Airport has agreed to a takeover offer from an IFM-led consortium following weeks of negotiations and due diligence. The offer is worth $8.75 a share and will be done via a scheme of arrangement. The bid values Sydney Airport's equity at approximately $23.6 billion. The deal faces scrutiny from the Australian Competition Consumer Commission because IFM investors hold stakes in nine other Australian airports, including Melbourne and Brisbane. The watchdog already started taking submissions on the consortium's offer from airlines and aviation services companies last month. 
The mega deal must also gain merger clearance from the European Union and Australia's Foreign Investment Review Board. And according to Deloitte's Retailers Christmas Survey 2021, they're putting their faith in the consumer more than any other time in the survey's 10-year history as the country emerges from COVID-induced lockdowns with a spring in its step. The survey report assesses retailer sentiment for the approaching Christmas period and identifies key trends, expectations and priorities for Australian retailers for 2022. Key survey findings include 80% of retailers expect to see sales growth in 2021, up 20 percentage points from 2020. 52% expect sales to bounce back rapidly post-lockdowns. 42% believe new product ranges and personalised marketing will be the most important focus areas to boost sales. 60% say more than half of their Christmas sales will be digitally enabled in some way. 55% are concerned and 26% very concerned about receiving sufficient stock for Christmas. 72% highlight shipping costs as having a material impact on their input costs. Nearly 90% expect trading conditions to improve or stay the same over the next 12 months. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Jan Snyman, Empire Practice Manager for the Modern Workplace. We'll examine how the remote working trend has dramatically accelerated over the past 12 months, which means organisations increasingly take a cloud-first approach to facilitate daily production. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about market trends ahead. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 